This is Medieval Death Trip for Tuesday, November 8th, episode 32, Election Special 2016. What? Hello and welcome to a special episode of Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. And we're coming in ahead of the normal schedule with a special short episode uh, because I have an election-themed text that I was planning on doing, and it rather suddenly occurred to me that probably the last thing anyone's going to want to think about a week from now is election anything. And God help us if we Americans are still adjudicating this election next week or beyond next week. Talk about a death trip. So anyway, while this 2016 U.S. election still has some bright and shiny currency to it and hasn't yet become a rotten revenant stalking our countryside followed by dogs, here's a fun little election-themed episode to distract you through the inevitable stresses and anxieties of Election Day that it appears almost everyone is feeling this year, regardless of ideology or party, uh, and even regardless of whether or not you live in America. Ugh, elections. Elections are not a process we typically associate with the Middle Ages. When we think of medieval governance, the word that springs to mind, of course, is monarchy, and trailing right along behind it, authoritarianism. It's an age of hierarchies rooted in birthright and inheritance and absolute power. But the real picture, of course, as always, is more complex than that. Uh, There are medieval elections, a lot more of them than you might think. Indeed, even the kings of England were technically elected. The barons of the kingdom selected the new ruler to be crowned, though part of this selection certainly involves recognizing the rightfulness of the claims, which brings in birthright and other considerations along those lines, Uh, but it certainly could also come down to raw factionalism. And we should remember that while these are elections, they are not uh, typically secret ballots. So the ability to wield influence and coercive pressure is very significant. But there remains a basic underlying principle of the governor being appointed with the consent of the governed. Well, not all the governed, of course. In fact, only a very, very narrow strata of the governed. But still, the process of the transfer of power is rooted in the expression of a collective judgment or desire. Now, because birthright and dynastic inheritance are generally not supposed to be a factor in the lives of celibate clergy, though in practice things aren't always so, uh, the church is the place where we can see the election of officials in a style that has closer parallels to modern democracy. Sometimes you can even see campaigning by candidates in nearly modern forms. Abbots and bishops were generally elected by their communities, uh, meaning in the case of abbots, by the monks of the monastery, and in the case of bishops, by their cathedral chapter. Sometimes this election was just a formality, in which one candidate very clearly put forward by the king, or another secular power, is elected because nobody wants to get on the king's bad side. But the church did value its autonomy from the secular rulers, and so such pressures were also frequently challenged. Reforms in the 12th and 13th century, such as the Fourth Lateran Council, tried to insulate the church from secular meddling and establish stronger rules for how ecclesiastical elections were to be conducted. But the larger historical narrative 
uh, at least up to the Enlightenment, is one of increasing centralization of appointment powers, so that by the late Middle Ages, you have the Vatican taking quite a strong role in directing the election of bishops, and by the time you get to the mid-14th century, English bishops were basically just being outright appointed by the Pope. But today's election story comes from about 200 years before that development, when elections are still going strong. We're returning to Simeon of Durham's Tract on the Origin and Progress of This the Church of Durham for an account of an Episcopal election at Durham Cathedral in the year 1021. We last heard from Simeon back in episode 22 about the theft of the remains of Bede by Alfred the Sacrist and the relocation of those relics to the shrine of Durham's patron St. Cuthbert, who will be repeatedly invoked in today's selection. We'll start the story with the death of Bishop Alden, which is said to have come in the wake of a devastating defeat of the Northumbrians by the Scots at the Battle of Carum in 1016 or 1018, depending on who you ask. Simeon happens to be of the 1018 faction. Alden was enormously important in the history of the Church of Durham because he is the one who relocated both the remains of Cuthbert and the very bishopric itself to Durham. So while he's not the first bishop of the community of St. Cuthbert, he is the first bishop of Durham, and his death leaves an enormous vacuum that is not easily filled. But a new bishop must be elected, and Simeon gives us one account of how that occurred. I'll be reading from the 19th century translation by Joseph Stevenson, with a few adjustments of phrasing here and there, borrowed from David Rollison's much more recent edition of Simeon's History. In the year of our Lord's incarnation, 1018, while Canute ruled the kingdom of the Angles, a comet appeared for thirty nights to the people of Northumbria, a terrible presage of the calamity by which that province was about to be desolated. For shortly afterwards, that is, after thirty days, nearly the whole population, from the River Tees to the Tweed and their borders, were cut off in a conflict in which they were engaged with a countless multitude of Scots at Carum. When the bishop heard of the miserable destruction of the people of St. Cuthbert, he was smitten to the heart with deep grief, and he sighed forth these words. It is my miserable lot to be reserved to see such days as these are. Have I lived thus long only to be the witness of such a destruction of my people as the present? The land will never recover its original condition. O most holy Cuthbert, O confessor beloved of God, if at any time I have done aught which was well-pleasing in your sight, make me now, I entreat you, some return for the same. And let this be my reward, that since my people have fallen, I may not long survive them. It was not long before he obtained the request for which he had been petitioner, for a few days afterwards he was seized with sickness and died, after having held the bishopric for twenty-nine years, of which number five were passed at Chester and twenty-four at Durham. Of the church, the building of which he had commenced, he left behind him nothing more than a western tower, and that in an unfinished condition, the completion and dedication of which were reserved for his successor. Upon the death of Alden, the church continued for nearly three years without the protection of a bishop. 
its inmates, unwilling any longer to endure this lengthened deprivation, summoned a meeting and deliberated about the choice of a successor from among their own number. Each of them, in succession, felt it to be hard to leave the pleasures of the world, to abandon its allurements, and to cast aside its pleasures. It is hard to submit to carry the heavy yoke of holiness. For, according to the canon law, it was custom that no one should be chosen as bishop of that church save from among its own inmates. Nor could anyone, unless of honest and religious conversation, lightly venture to ascend the seat of St. Aidan and St. Cuthbert and those other holy bishops. Whilst they were deliberating on these matters, one of their number, named Edmund, a priest of good conversation, joined them and asked them what they were doing and why they were so sorrowful. And when he understood that they were treating about the election of a bishop, he said to them jokingly, Why do you not elect me as a bishop? Knowing him to be a religious and efficient man, they took his jest as if it were in earnest, for they all unanimously agreed to elect him. At first he believed they were joking with him, but when he discovered that they were speaking in sober truthfulness, he took the matter deeply to heart and insisted that in no one particular was he fitted for such a dignity. Whilst they were urging him to undertake it, he replied, I acknowledge that I am wholly unfit for such an office, but I know that nothing is impossible with God, and I pray that his will and the will of St. Cuthbert may be accomplished in me. So then, after they had spent three days before the tomb of St. Cuthbert in earnest prayers and fastings, as had been the constant custom heretofore, entreating him that he would declare by some manifest token who it was whom he should wish to be chosen to the bishopric, and while a certain religious priest was celebrating a mass, which had been appointed for this very purpose, near the head of the saint, as he was in the midst of the canon, he heard a voice issuing, as it were, from the very sepulchre of the father, which thrice proclaimed Edmund as bishop. The priest forthwith thrice knelt suppliantly before the altar, and when at last he stood erect, he still heard the same voice proclaim three times Edmund as bishop. When the mass was ended, he inquired of the deacon who had stood near him at the sacrifice of the altar whether he had heard anything during the secret of the mass. He answered, Thrice I heard Edmund proclaimed bishop, but from whom that voice proceeded I know not. Then the priest related the facts of the case as they really stood to the deacon, whilst all were wondering and inquiring why he bent the knee in the canon contrary to the custom of the church. Then all, offering their praises and thanksgivings to God through St. Cuthbert, laid hold upon Edmund and constrained him to take upon himself the government of the church. A certain aged priest was in the habit of giving this account of his election, who stated that he had frequently heard the whole history from his grandfather, who was that very deacon who heard the voice whilst he was reading the gospel in the Mass. So then, Edmund was conducted to Canute with much honor, and the king himself, rejoicing at his election, commanded that he should be ordained with due solemnity. But he declared that nothing would induce him to mount the chair of his predecessors, who were monks, unless he himself were to follow their example, and like them assume the monastic dress. Taking upon himself then the religious garb, he was honorably conducted as bishop at Winchester by Wollstone, Archbishop of York, and he was much beloved and honored by the king. On his return homewards, he paid a visit to the monastery of Birch, and he obtained by his entreaties from the abbot a certain monk, who was notably skilled in ecclesiastical offices and in the observance of the regular discipline, whose duty it should be to bear him constant company and to instruct him in the details of a monastic life. His name was Egelric, 
and he afterwards became bishop of this church of Durham. This Edmund was a man of noble origin, and honorable alike in person and behavior. He never gave occasion for any evil surmises during his whole life, and proved himself energetic in the management of the church. Such as were his enemies had occasion to fear him, as indeed had all wicked people, while he was ever humble and amiable to every good man. He never flattered the powerful from fear, nor did he suffer the possessions of the church to be lost through the violence of any adversary. So, here we have a candidacy that started as a joke becoming reality when a desperate crowd latches onto it. If only there were some kind of parallel to our modern age. Well, of course, there are some aspects of this story that are decidedly less parallel. Uh, Simeon's account takes on the structure of a kind of conversion story, with Edmund taking on the full burdens of his office, including adopting a life lived according to a strict monastic rule, uh, indeed, with a specially designated PA there to keep him on track. Uh, and this leads to a strong and virtuous abbacy. And the anecdote of Edmund's joke itself is basically just a slightly skewed approach to the classic humility topos um, used for saints and other great leaders. There's a whiff of the philosopher king there, that the person who doesn't want power, who doesn't want to lead, and indeed, who sees the very idea as an implausible joke, that that's the best candidate for the job. We've had a few candidates in America's recent history who tried to lean into this classical waving off the diadem act, uh, and it used to be a common trope in early American presidential elections, sort of on the model of George Washington's famous reluctance to take up the reins of power, uh, as I've learned from John Dickerson's fantastic Slate podcast, Whistle Stop, uh, all about stories from American elections throughout the country's history. Uh, and I heartily recommend it. Uh, but anyway, I don't think you're going to make it through the kinds of primaries we've had lately with any sort of I grudgingly accept your nomination attitude. Uh, I do not foresee a philosopher king in America's future, uh, not in the next couple of decades anyway. We do have another version of the election of Edmund recorded by William of Malmesbury, who reports the same basic facts as we have in this story, focusing on the idea that Edmund just made a joke about being a candidate that the cathedral electors then acted on in earnest. Um, indeed, William is probably using Simeon as his source for this event. But William doesn't include any of the miraculous confirmations of the electors' choice. In fact, he renders the divine voice as a mere simile. He writes, They all, as if God had inspired them, snatched the words out of his mouth as though God had spoken. It's an interesting grounding of the event. He also gives us another little quick character detail that Simeon does not. William describes Edmund's reaction on being elected in this way, quote, Aghast and repenting of what he had said, for he preferred ball games to the cowl, he was made a monk. Maybe that takes a bit of the shine off of the philosopher king polish that Simeon has buffed onto this important figure from his church's history. Well, I know that's been really quick, but we're going to wrap up our election special here so that I can get it out the door and into your internet pipes. Uh, we won't answer our mystery word today. Uh, we're going to get to it in our next regular episode, which should be arriving itself pretty soon. 
Until then, you can find more information about the show and all of our episodes at MedievalDeathTrip.com, and you can follow us on Twitter at MDTPodcast, and send me email correspondence to Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. That's going to do it for today. To my fellow Americans, get out there and vote if you haven't already, and to all and sundry, thanks for listening.